Hello and welcome to Optimal the Podcast. I'm your host, Dickon Weatherby. This podcast and my website all focus on one goal, and that's the quest for optimal health. If you're enjoying this podcast, please go over to OptimalDX.com. Check out our resources on how we can help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Hello there, Dr. Weatherby here from Optimal DX. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Optimal the Podcast. This is episode three, and today we are going to be talking about something that really is a major hurdle for our patients and clients achieving optimal health and wellness, and that is insulin resistance. So today's topic is insulin resistance. We're going to be taking a look at the biochemistry and physiology of insulin, why someone would become insulin resistant, what are some of the problems associated with it. And then I'm going to be joined later on by Beth Ellen DeLulio. Uh, we're going to dive into some of the research behind some of these pretty cool biomarkers, some of which we're familiar with, some of which we're not. And I'm going to do a dive into the HOMA2 calculator and also the Quickie index for um, providing us information on insulin resistance, looking at fasting insulin, blood sugar, or blood glucose, fasting blood glucose, um, C-peptide and things like that. And then we're going to finish up by um, talking about what are some of the things that you can do for yourself if you're suspecting that you have insulin resistance or for your patients. So um, kicking it off here, let's look at the biochemistry and physiology of insulin. So remembering back to our anatomy and physiology, and we talked about insulin and glucagon and things like that, well, we have to remember that insulin is a peptide hormone produced and secreted by the islets of Langerhan, which is a great jeopardy question or answer, um, but produced primarily by the beta cells uh, in the islets of Langerhan in the pancreas. And it is an anabolic hormone. It has anabolic actions that lower blood glucose and affect lipid and protein metabolism. So insulin promotes the synthesis of glycogen, the storage form of sugar or glucose, uh, protein and lipids, and also promotes cell division and growth. So it really is a, a major anabolic hormone as well. So some of the tissues that it has direct effect on in the muscle, it increases glucose transport and utilization and stimulates glycogen synthesis and storage. And then in the liver cells, again, it stimulates glycogen synthesis and lipid storage. It reduces gluconeogenesis. Now, remembering back to biochemistry, gluconeogenesis is the capacity of the body through its biochemical processes to actually to uh, synthesize a molecule of glucose. And um, it's a beautiful process. And if you love biochemistry as much as I do, you'll want to dive back into your biochemistry books to be uh, reintroduced to gluconeogenesis. Um, so insulin reduces gluconeogenesis and also reduces hepatic glucose production. And it decreases the availability of circulating fatty acids. And the third tissue that it has direct effect on is white adipose tissue. So it increases glucose transport, lipogenesis, and decreases lipolysis. Interestingly enough, pancreatic beta cells are able to store a small amount of insulin that can be released quickly when blood glucose rises. And a reduction in insulin release at this point indicates what is called beta cell dysfunction and predicts an increased likelihood of developing type 2 diabetes. So that's kind of a quick run through on the biochemistry and physiology of insulin. Now let's take a look at this concept of insulin resistance. So what are some of the causative factors uh, on the road to diabetes? So one of the things that we talk about, I talk about a lot in my training. So if you're interested in, in kind of getting a deeper dive into functional blood chemistry, you know, go over to uh, uh, optimaldx.com and sign up for the waiting list for my next uh, functional blood chem training. One of the things I talk about is the road to diabetes and how it's really, really important for us as practitioners to recognize that patients don't necessarily wake up one morning as a diabetic. This is a long process that happens over time. So we talk about the road to diabetes. What are the steps? What are the stages? Well, the road to insulin resistance and diabetes is paved with a few things. It's paved with added sugar, processed food, micronutrient insufficiencies, and a sedentary lifestyle. 
So this same path may also lead to other complications, including metabolic syndrome, polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH, and then its uh, kind of close brother is non-alcoholic liver disease, or NAFLD. So even those with normal glucose tolerance, the presence of insulin resistance, and the accompanying problems of having too much insulin in your body, having too much body fat, having too much obesity and sedentary lifestyle, these things are all predictive of type 2 diabetes development. So I'm going to be a very um, merocentric here. I'm going to be looking at some of the uh, statistics that came out of the 2020 CDC National Diabetes Statistics Report. An estimated 34.1 million adults, that's 13% of adults, have diabetes. 7.3 million of them are unaware and undiagnosed. Another 88 million are pre-diabetic, that's 34.5. Ultimately, almost half of the U.S. adults have blood sugar regulation issues, and that is not counting pre-diabetes. And what's interesting here is they're looking at a fairly you know, distinct definition of what is diabetes. They're not looking at, oh, who's on the road to diabetes and all that kind of stuff. Um, we recognize from a functional medicine perspective, nutritional, naturopathic um, perspective, that many, many, many of our patients have what we call blood sugar dysregulation. They're not able to regulate their sugars properly, and therefore that's leading them to step onto that road, uh, ultimately to metabolic syndrome, insulin resistance, and type 2 diabetes. So what are some of the basic risk factors for type 2 diabetes? Well, pre-diabetes, obviously, being overweight, uh, being 45 years old and older, uh, parent, brother, sister with type 2 diabetes, so that's the familial connection, sedentary lifestyle, physically active fewer than three times, uh, three days a week, gestational diabetes, um, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and then finally ethnicity, African Americans, Hispanics, Native Americans, Native Alaskans, etc., are uh, unfortunately predisposed um, more to get more diabetes than um, other ethnicities. And of course, we have poor diet. So in 2018, a meta-analysis of 86 papers confirmed robust evidence for a variety of dietary, lifestyle, medical, biochemical, environmental, and psychosocial factors that increase the risk of type 2 diabetes. So I want to go over those. So at the top of the list was adiposity, high BMI, metabolically unhealthy obesity, high waist circumference, high waist-to-height ratio, high waist-to-hip ratio, and low hip circumference. So these are all things that we can measure in our clinics, right? So these are all things that we can, we can do with our patients. And then decreased physical activity, higher sedentary time and duration of television watching. Again, if we're doing our job properly and talking to our patients, we should be asking about physical activity as well. Uh, low level of education and conscientiousness. Um, we'll talk a little bit about education and how that's so very, very important for um, getting people back onto the road of health and dealing with uh, insulin resistance in a later section. Um, smoking and air pollution. Uh, medical conditions are much more likely to increase the risk. Having a high systolic blood pressure, having previously diagnosed metabolic syndrome, late uh, menarche, gestational diabetes or preterm birth, major depressive disorders, bipolar disorder, nitrogen dioxide exposure, psoriasis. So these are all some of those other medical conditions and things that we should be taking a look at and keeping an eye out in our histories. And then serum biomarkers. So this is our uh, area, right? So this is the functional blood. So increased ALT, increased GGT. So those are two of our four liver enzymes. Increased uric acid is an inflammatory biomarker. Increased ferritin, again, another uh, inflammatory biomarker. And increased C-reactive protein as well. And then accompanying that, and we'll talk about these in the next section too, but decreased levels of adiponectin. Adiponectin is something that we have in the software as well. Decreasing levels show uh, increasing risk for, for diabetes and all of that. And then also low levels of vitamin D. And then finally, this uh, 86-study uh, retrospective analysis looked at uh, unhealthy dietary patterns. And they saw a fairly common type of diet that would be predisposing someone to be more likely to get diabetes. Increased consumption of processed and red meat, sugar-sweetened beverages, 
decreased intake of whole grains. Interestingly, uh, coffee was uh, part of that as well. Moderate intake of alcohol. So it's not surprising that chronic inflammation may trigger insulin resistance as evidenced by association with inflammatory biomarkers. So increased ALT, increased GGT, increased uric acid, increased CRP, decreased adiponectin, decreased vitamin D, increases our risk of type 2 diabetes. So um, we will be posting a lot of these up on our blog. Go to optimaldx.com forward slash blog. We'll be doing some separate uh, blog posts on various different sections that we're covering here in the podcast. Um, and we'll have some graphs and charts as well for some of this research. So patients traveling down uh, this road may think that the milepost for pre-diabetes is inconsequential. So they're driving down the road to diabetes and they're seeing the exit for pre-diabetes and go, oh, that's very nice, Starbucks, um, you know, Dunkin' Donuts, let's keep moving. However, the complications of pre-diabetes are extremely problematic too. So include heart disease and stroke. And these complications extend in diabetes to kidney failure, blindness, and lower extremity amputation. So this is really why we do this work of the, of the optimal ranges, looking at optimal health and that sort of thing. We have an opportunity to come in, do a full evaluation of our patients, lifestyle, exercise, diet, supplementation, blood work, uh, signs and symptoms, history, and all of that sort of stuff. Putting that all together gives us a great picture. We can get a snapshot of where are they on the road to diabetes. Are they actually in pre-diabetes? Are they moving beyond that? Are they even before that? Something that Beth talked about a while ago called pre-pre-diabetes. So that's why you know we need to look at these biomarkers. We need to look at them uh, through the lens of patterns. So uh, very, very important stuff. So insulin resistance, let's talk a bit about that. This is considered an early sign of type 2 diabetes development. It's characterized by an inability to reduce elevated blood glucose in the face of normal plasma levels of insulin, a phenomenon that often accompanies chronic excess intake of calories, carbohydrates, and fats. So in the event that cells become resistant to insulin, those target tissues, the muscle, the liver, the adipose tissue, they don't respond normally to insulin. So physiologically, there will be a decrease in glucose uptake, increased glucose oxidation, and glycogen synthesis. There will also be less suppression of lipid oxidation and lipolysis. Endogenous production of glucose will continue and won't be suppressed as would ordinarily occur with normal insulin sensitivity. As this condition persists, plasma insulin levels will continue to rise in order to compensate for cellular resistance. The cells are going, no, we don't, we don't want to pay attention to you, insulin. Um, so the insulin goes, well, let's jack it up. Let's increase the output of insulin from those beta cells. Um, eventually, this leads to lipid and glucose toxicity and ultimately beta cell failure. And we'll talk about that and why the HOMA calculator is such a cool calculator to be looking at because it gives us a snapshot of beta cell activity and also a snapshot of insulin sensitivity in general in the body and then a snapshot at insulin resistance. So research is suggesting that early signs of subclinical inflammation may precede and predict insulin resistance. So of all of those biomarkers that we looked at associated with an early risk of type 2 diabetes, we were looking at um, C-reactive protein, we are looking at ferritin, we were looking at uric acid. All of those are, are sort of inflammatory in nature. So that subclinical inflammation may actually be an important way of preceding and predicting insulin resistance. So this to be, appears to be true um, of hepatic insulin resistance. This is associated with early beta cell upregulation. Ultimately, peripheral insulin resistance is the major factor contributing to metabolic syndrome. So compartmentalizing the body into the liver, the most major metabolically active organ in the body. So we have hepatic insulin resistance is probably the first place that it starts. And then from there, it spreads out to peripheral insulin resistance as well. So in general, this has long been recognized as a metabolic disorder and a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Back in 1991, there were uh, detailed reviews of this process. Uh, insulin resistance is directly related to severe hypertension and appears to be uh, the connection between uh, essential hypertension and diabetes. Uh, this uh, study or review also said that even in normal weight individuals, an exaggerated insulin response to glucose is observed in those with hypertension. If you're not measuring your patient's blood pressure on a regular basis, 
please, please, please go ahead and do that. Uh, and if you are a patient listening to this, go down to Walgreens or, or wherever your local drugstore is. Start keeping note of your blood pressure. Uh, very, very important thing to know. Um, insulin is also noted to be atherogenic as it increases cholesterol transport into arterial cells where it enhances lipid synthesis, stimulates cell proliferation, and promotes plaque formation. So this is one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that we don't just have blood sugar dysregulation, we don't just have cardiovascular disease. These are intricately connected processes in the body. It's very hard to have one without probably having the other. And so uh, important to remember that connection. Um, at present, insulin resistance is gaining greater recognition as a comorbidity of cardiovascular disease. So here we are in COVID-19 territory, looking at those comorbidities, looking at those people with COVID that have typically have adverse reactions. Top of the list, uh, lung issues, uh, but also cardiovascular issues and obesity as well. So we have to think about insulin resistance with these people uh, as well. So chronic hyperglycemia, so insulin resistance leads to higher and higher levels of blood glucose. This contributes to damaging oxidative stress and inflammation. Insulin resistance itself promotes the atherogenic dyslipidemia, characterized by high levels of triglycerides, low levels of HDL, increased small, dense LDL, all of the things that we don't want to have happen in order to maintain an optimal cardiovascular system. Now, insulin resistance can directly damage myocardial cells and cause endothelial dysfunction as well. Uh, it inhibits the use of fatty acid, the heart's preferred source of energy, which ordinarily provides 50 to 70% of its ATP needs. So again, we'll be putting up some uh, articles here and some great little charts and graphs on the blog at optimaldx.com forward slash blog. So in summary for this particular section where we're talking about the physiology and the biochemistry of insulin and we're looking at what is insulin resistance, what are the associated conditions, we have to think about this. It's considered a major risk factor for the development of dyslipidemia, hypertension, atherosclerosis, and a likely risk factor for stroke and coronary heart disease. All right, so that's a lot of the sort of background information on insulin resistance. We want to sort of change gears now, and I've been joined by Beth Ellen DeLulio. Hi, Beth. Hello. How's life in Florida? It's nice and hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, in Bend here, it's starting to get to fall, so uh, we're, we're on the opposite end of the spectrum. You get the mm -hmm. nice, nice uh, warm weather during the, during the winters here. But we want to talk um, about sort of the assessment side for insulin resistance. Um, we'll talk a little bit about signs and symptoms and then dive into some individual biomarkers. So Beth has done some um, pretty cool research on um, some of these biomarkers, that some of which we, we look at all the time, right, Beth? We're looking at fasting glucose, fasting mm -hmm. insulin, but there's a few here that, um, that are slightly... Uh, rarer, so, so to speak. And then um, I'm going to be talking a little bit about a couple of uh, calculators. One is called the Homer 2 calculator, and then also Quickie, which okay. is uh, two really cool calculators that we're building into the uh, software. So giving us a really good sense of, of the state of insulin resistance in the body, but also looking at beta cell function in terms of um, beta cell output, and then also uh, sensitivity, insulin sensitivity in the body. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, it's, it's extremely important to recognize that insulin resistance comes early in the process. And Beth, we always talk about, or I always talk about, the road to diabetes is, is a long one. We don't suddenly just wake up one day diabetic. Well, we might. But um, the, the, the physiological and biochemical processes that are happening in the body to get to that point are, are long. So insulin resistance actually happens quite early. And it can actually precede overt diabetes by, by several years. Um, so some of the signs and symptoms of insulin resistance would include hyperglycemia, blood, level, blood sugar levels are going up, hypertriglyceridemia, high levels of uh, triglycerides. And then I'm, I was curious about the sort of the cognitive side of it too, the inability to concentrate. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, I always think of that in some, some ways tied into sort of that reactive hyperglycemic kind of state. Mm -hmm. But interesting that inability to concentrate is a, a sign or a symptom of uh, insulin resistance. Um, intestinal bloating, sleepiness or fatigue after meals, weight gain. Um, it may not be uh, symptomatic, though it is a common finding in metabolic syndrome. So they are associated with each other. And so that obviously is obesity, hypertension, 
uh, impaired fasting glucose, elevated triglycerides, low HDL cholesterol is sort of that hallmark metabolic syndrome. Some of the risk factors for insulin resistance include age. As you get older, I'm presuming, Beth, your cells become more resistant, right? So, Oh, not my cells. No, no. No, not your cells. <laughs> One cells, not you and me, because we are um, <laughs> biochemically perfect. No, um, so age over 45 years. So thinking about your older patients, that's why maybe doing some of these uh, Homer and Quickie calculations are kind of helpful. Uh, hyperinsulinemia, that's why I love measuring fasting insulin. Anything above five is becoming clinically relevant. Hypertension, please, please, please take your patient's blood pressure. Um, mm -hmm. It's so easy to do, so easy to track. Uh, put it on a, 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 you know, a tracking form so you can see changes over time. And then, you know, we've got our obesity markers um, for insulin resistance. And, and abdominal obesity greatly increases your risk of insulin uh, resistance. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the dreaded sedentary lifestyle. Um, so that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But, and I, I was curious about this, Beth, maybe you could speak a little bit about to this research study that you did. Even in young subjects aged eight to 19 years old, we're seeing increasing insulin resistance significantly associated with that central obesity, uh, high blood pressure, elevated triglycerides, low HDL and impaired uh, glucose tolerance. Mm -hmm. I was curious about that. Do you have any sense on, on that particular finding of eight to 19 year olds? You remember that well, study that yeah, I mean, they just that I, that I found that study that, yeah, I mean, they're just uh, very young. And usually you're not looking for these markers in these younger people. Right. And you know that somebody's sitting in front of a video game 24-7 and they don't go outside and they don't get exercise. You know they could be at increased risk, right? You know that they're not going to be healthy. But nobody's really looking at these markers necessarily. So that says to me, all those things need to be measured in these younger people, especially, I th I'm going to say, especially if they're sedentary or have a poor diet. Right, and right. because those are the, one of the, some of the major risk factors. But yeah, those are things that when they look at them closely in these younger folks, again, starting at eight years of age, uh, that is an increased risk of insulin resistance that's going to increase the risk of diabetes. So it has to be looked at before they're 25 or 30 years old and, and getting into trouble metabolically. And finally, somebody has taken a close look at their blood sugar or right. their, all their blood, you know, all their blood chemistries. So that speaks to the fact that the pediatricians are going to have to consider and assess these markers early on because their patients are at risk. Right. So if, if we're looking at those markers, I would suggest fasting blood glucose, mm -hmm. uh, fasting insulin, mm -hmm. C-peptide, if you can mm -hmm. get them to run it. And then of course, obviously the blood, the blood lipids. Mm -hmm. um, and then measuring blood pressure and then doing a physical exam. Unfortunately, in COVID, like a lot of people aren't going to actually see their physician. They may be doing it on, mm -hmm. on the Zoom call. So it's a little bit harder to uh, see that central obesity because some people, you know, have big central obesity, but then on their upper bodies looking pretty good. So if all you okay. see <laughs> their upper body, then that's, that's fine. Um, <laughs> and I think the other part too, I, I found this pretty interesting, is that insulin resistance is becoming more common, uh, though less obvious in seemingly healthy individuals. Again, that's why I love running that maintenance preventative panel that includes those biomarkers. It includes mm -hmm. the fasting glucose, the, the hemoglobin A1C that's going to give you your estimated average glucose. It's going to give you, you know, your fasting insulin, your C-peptide. Now we can do the HOMA calculator because we can look at uh, fasting glucose with C-peptide or fasting insulin is going to give you that HOMA scores. Mm -hmm. uh, and we'll talk about those uh, obviously a little bit later. I want to say too, it, it might be worth the investment for an individual to pay out of pocket for the low, you know, you can get a really good deal with some of the direct labs and pay out of pocket for some of these markers that, you know, health insurance might not cover. Mm -hmm. And if they don't cover it, and then you get the bill that would be the going rate, you know, as if you were just just walking into the, the lab, mm -hmm. uh, it might be too expensive. And if you get surprised that, oh, insurance doesn't cover it, that can be, a, you know, a disaster for folks. So maybe thinking ahead of a time of, about investing in the, this lab work, you yeah. know, because it's so important, even if insurance doesn't cover it. It doesn't have to be the super, super comprehensive panels that we're running. I mean, we are mm -hmm. seriously just talking about some blood sugar markers mm -hmm. and the uh, you know, blood fats, just as a, as, as a starting point. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit, you did some research and looking at some of these other associated disorders, because I always think of insulin resistance as clearly being associated with diabetes, but it's not. There's definitely other 
other conditions when we can think of its relationship to to the heart and to vascular disorders such as atherosclerosis but i was curious looking at this list that you brought up so some of the other disorders that are associated with it yeah this was an, a nice list and again it was is it cause or effect right, right. so acromegaly was uh, associated autoantibodies against the insulin receptor and genetic right. insulin receptor disorders. So sometimes it's a genetic disorder or an autoimmune disorder uh, that causes the insulin resistance. Uh, coronary artery disease, heart disease, we know that those, they're associated. Uh, dyslipidemia, as we spoke about, glucocorticoid excess. Uh, we, of course, we know hyperlipidemia, hypertension, infection, obesity, we talked about polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, pregnancy, stress, stroke, and uremia uh, have all been found to be associated, not always, uh, maybe not causative, but associated mm -hmm. with insulin resistance. And then you, we talked about the brain a little bit, cerebral. Yeah, talk about the brain. I, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The cerebral insulin resistance is suspected of being a factor in cognitive impairment and even in Alzheimer's. I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, both human and animal research uh, suggests that insulin plays an important role in brain metabolism, including synaptic viability, neurotransmitter turnover, and possibly even amyloid beta peptide clearance. So again, we're talking about Alzheimer's risk and insulin resistance. So it, like you said, even just that fasting insulin, it's, it's not commonly ordered unless they suspect somebody has insulin resistance already. Mm -hmm. So why not check it? Because, and we'll see, you know, elsewhere in, in the blog post, you'll see that even folks can have a normal blood glucose in an elevated insulin because the insulin's spike fighting so hard to keep that glucose normal. So if you didn't look at the insulin and realize it's very high and you just saw the normal glucose, you think, oh, everything's fine. Mm. And it's not. Yeah, and it's not. interesting. Well, this kind of sort of plays into the next section, which really is looking at these individual biomarkers. So, you know, obviously as, as physicians and, and we have a access to these blood tests, let's talk a little bit about what what biomarkers i mean we've talked about a few of them right fasting glucose and fasting insulin mm -hmm. that's there's a lot more that we can be looking at so mm -hmm. um i think i'll kick it off with fasting glucose mm -hmm. i mean we're all aware you know with elevated and impaired glucose tolerance is associated with prediabetes it's clearly a hallmark part of diabetes um but it, it also um you know, it is associated with insulin resistance on some level. So we like to see levels in here in the US 75 to 86 um, milligrams per deciliter to kind of, that's hard to do. Um, I know a lot of patients that, you know, struggle to keep their, their, in, their fasting glucose levels in the 90s. I think as long as you're working towards it, I think that's probably a good thing. Um, mm -hmm. Also doing like that two hour glucose insulin tolerance test can be super helpful as well. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What is the, what do you think the relationship obviously between ins, fasting insulin and insulin resistance? I think some people get kind of a little bit confused about that thinking, oh, you know, if I'm insulin resistant, what is that actually going to do with the insulin levels? So... Mm -hmm. Well, as we know, the body keeps responding with more and more insulin. If the cells say, no, we're not going to respond to that insulin, the body just keeps producing more and more and more. And that's why the insulin levels can go up. And then when, as we know, they start to drop back down in someone who's compromised like this, then maybe the beta cells are burning out mm -hmm. and they're just giving up and not even producing insulin. And then you're on your way to type 2 diabetes. So, you know, we know the fasting insulin can go high, 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 and then drop down. And if it drops down because beta cells aren't producing it, then you're even further down the road than we thought. So it's always so important, as you said, and to look at it over time. I want to know last year's fasting insulin, this year's fasting insulin. I'm going to know, want to know next year's fasting insulin, or maybe yeah, right. six months from now fasting insulin, and see that series, right, of, yeah. of results. And then we've got um, some other biomarkers, adiponectin. Um, we've already done, I think, an article on that in the blog. We've talked a little mm -hmm. bit about it in the past. Um, can you tell us a little bit what you what you found in terms of, of adiponectin, some of these maybe inflammatory markers as well? Yep. So, well, the adiponectin itself is inversely associated with fasting glucose and fasting insulin and insulin resistance and even beta cell function and hemoglobin A1C. Okay. So if adiponectin is nice and high, those others tend to be low. But as the levels of adiponectin drop, and they can drop quickly just prior to development of type 2 diabetes, then you know there's a problem. So adiponectin is in inversely associated basically with insulin resistance and its markers. 
um, some inflammatory markers also like HSCRP, high sensitivity C-reactive protein. Uh, they do find that it's elevated in impaired glucose tolerance and in prediabetes and diabetes. So, but they didn't find as strong of an independent association, mm -hmm. but you do tend to see those elevated because we know diabetes is an inflammatory disease. Uh, IL-6 also, sign of inflammation, that's going to be associated with elevated fasting insulin, insulin resistance, uh, beta cell function, and that does become elevated in diabetes. Um, other markers for inflammation like interleukin-1 and glyce A, in addition to HSCRP and interleukin-6, have been observed for insulin resistance. So there are a lot of different things we can look at over and above the blood chemistries if you can get the extra uh, biomarkers ordered. And another uh, really simple biomarker that is uh -huh. on every single panel that you run is triglycerides. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so, I mean, we've talk, talked here, and you probably, if you go back and listen to this, you'll hear us say, we want to see historical data because just doing a one-time snapshot on any of these biomarkers might not be enough. Uh -huh. it's, it's like that slowly creeping up triglyceride levels, that slowly creeping up insulin level, that slowly creeping up blood pressure. Mm -hmm. I remember looking at a blood pressure curve on, on a patient and we've been tracking it for two years. And at any one moment, you might not have said, yeah, your blood pressure is getting too high. But when you look at it on, on a mm. group, you see this mm -hmm. gradually ascending uh, systolic and diastolic blood pressure, you know that they're trending towards that. Mm -hmm. So trends, yeah. Um, yeah, trends, trends, trends. So mm -hmm. hypertrendosteridemia, um, I thought, I thought it was interesting too. I know it's yeah. elsewhere in the in the in the um, post, but that when the cells aren't responding to insulin, there's more release of free fatty acids into the bloodstream that then go back to the liver and get just get repackaged as triglycerides. Mm. So they might not even be on a high fat diet, let's say, but the triglycerides are high and no one can figure it out. And if it's insulin resistance causing that, it's because the cells keep releasing fatty acids because they're not responded to the insulin, which would have kept the fatty acids in the cells. So mm. you're releasing more and more fatty acids from the fat cells uh, with insulin resistance. And again, they get repackaged into triglycerides. So sometimes people can't figure out why the triglycerides are high and it could be insulin resistance. So it's got to be investigated, especially yeah. with a larger waist, somebody with a lot of uh, abdominal uh, obesity. Yeah. And then that was what Gerald Reavens first saw way back when, when he called this syndrome X. He was mm. looking at, hmm, what's interesting is like this, this triglyceride level keeps going up. And I think he probably was one of the first people to bring that to attention. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Fasting triglyceride levels will, will I, again, chicken or, chicken or the egg, which one comes yep. first, but maybe yep. both come together. Yep. Or again, too, I want to say to the high glucose levels, of course, your body can convert glucose yeah. or carbohydrates into triglycerides. So that could be another source of the higher triglycerides, right? right. The whole metabolic picture is important to see. Absolutely. Tell us a little bit about branch chains, because I mean, I'm always thinking of branch chains in terms of bodybuilders, and yep. my yep. son takes branch chains because he's yep. you know, a high-performance athlete and stuff. But I saw it's sort of interesting. Can you talk a little bit about some of the research you saw on branch chains? Yes, yes. I did a double take on this because same yeah. thing, you know, like even in the hospital, if somebody has liver issues, they tolerate branch chain amino acids very well. Or like you said, bodybuilders, those are good things, they're great things. And the research said, uh-oh, this suggests that uh, insulin resistance promotes a measurable increase in circulating levels of amino acids, especially the branch chain amino acids. And I'm not, don't think that that's, they're bad. Let me finish, right? So, so increased uh, circulating branch chain amino acids, and those are in turn associated at elevated levels in the blood, associated with risk of type 2 diabetes. And the underlying cause may be genetic or metabolic and not necessarily related to the dietary intake of branch chain amino acids, which has been associated the dietary intake is associated with positive effects, including muscle protein synthesis, glucose homeostasis, a regulation of body weight and body composition. So the intake of branched-chain amino acids is a good thing, uh, but when there's some metabolic dysfunction and they become elevated because of that metabolic dysfunction, then they seem to be a predictor of type 2 diabetes risk, especially with obesity. So, uh, you know, circulating levels I thought 
thought that was so interesting. And because insulin has an inhibitory effect on the release right. of branching amino acids from skeletal muscle. You want to keep it in the muscle. Insulin helps keep it in the muscle. So the blood levels tend to increase sharply again when the cells aren't listening to insulin or when insulin is absent, like in diabetic ketoacidosis, then the muscles are going to start releasing releasing branch chain amino acids. So the researchers are saying, you know, if you can get a snapshot of circulating branch chain amino acids, that might be a biomarker for evaluating type 2 diabetes risk, because even in bodybuilding, those branch chain amino acids should be driven into the muscle and do their work there. So I thought that was interesting. And I don't want to frighten people think, oh, branch chain amino acids yeah. are bad now. No. But if there's metabolic dysfunction that allows them to be released from the skeletal muscle and increases their circulating levels, then that's could be an issue. And I think, you know, that's another reason why high performance athletes should be getting their blood drawn. So yes. we should be looking at their fasting glucose, we should be looking at their fasting insulin, their C peptide, uh -huh. we should be running Homer on them, uh -huh. right? Because one of the things that you noticed was insulin resistance is actually quite common, even in people that are quote, unquote, healthy, and, uh -huh. you know, what uh -huh. we would consider to be optimal. Uh -huh. So sometimes if you're just looking at glucose and C peptide and fasting insulin, they might all what individually, they might be within a certain range. But when you look at them collectively through this lens called HOMA, which we'll talk about in a few moments, mm -hmm. then you can kind of get a window of, of, you know, potential trending towards insulin resistance, which in this case, for a high performance athlete who's taking branch chains, they want to, like you said, insulin is driving that stuff into the cells where it's mm -hmm. needed for protein synthesis and mm -hmm. muscle, muscle synthesis and stuff. So pretty cool. Um, tell us a little bit about, is there anything about C-peptide that was sort of striking um, for you? you know, some folks might not realize, but it is a reflection of insulin production in the body, right? It reflects yeah. insulin production and release as it's a byproduct of the conversion of pro-insulin into insulin. And it correlates significantly with HOMA, insulin resistance calculation, and could be even a surrogate marker possibly for insulin resistance measurements. So what people might not realize is it's not going to, it's going to tell people how much insulin they're making themselves. If you're taking insulin from the outside, it's not going to count that. It's only going to tell what a person is making on their own. And that could be important information. You know, if they're taking a lot, a lot of exogenous insulin, we want to know, well, are they making any of themselves? Or if they're not at all, then you have to evaluate that further. So C-peptide tells us about how much insulin the person themselves is making. Cool. And then this final one here, I was fascinated with alpha hydroxybutyrate, mm -hmm. you know, it's an organic acid, we can measure, we don't do organic acids, obviously, within the software at this particular time, I'd love to get those in there. But um, tell us a little bit about alpha hydroxybutyrate. Yeah, and this was still fasting levels. So this is circulating the alpha hydroxybutyrate, and it's a um, could be an early marker for insulin resistance and impaired glucose tolerance. Uh, elevations appear to be related to oxidative stress, increased lipid oxidation, amino acid catabolism, and increased demand for hepatic glutathione. So it's telling us a lot, that one, that one little marker. And um, a cohort study they did of 82 individuals found that the fasting levels of alpha hydroxybutyrate correlated significantly with elevations in fasting glucose, fasting insulin, HOMA IR, BMI, mm -hmm. body weight, waist circumference, waist to hip ratio, triglycerides, total cholesterol, and LDL cholesterol. So that was very interesting. They correlated significantly the levels of the alpha hydroxybutyrate. So it might be a whole new biomarker that we can right. investigate and look Love into. It. And some of the people had normal, even the cholesterol was down below 200. You know, the HDL was, you know, a little bit low, just below 45 and 50 men and women. Um, uh, hydroglycerides was found in only 21.9% of the patients, but yet this the circulating levels of half hydroxybutyrate did correlate with insulin resistance. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like a new uh, a new biomarker that we could, I guess, as I said, investigate and maybe incorporate into our evaluations. Love it. And then you did a little bit here on air pollution. I thought that was kind of interesting. No, you dig deep enough, you find out a little bit. I about know, everything. especially, you know, I'm living here in Oregon where, you know, we had 10 days of 500 oh, plus uh, air quality yeah. so I'm like, I've, I've, that definitely got my attention 
Yeah, clean air, right? It's everything. Um, so it's another risk factor for insulin resistance. Air pollution is another risk, in, uh, risk factor for insulin resistance and inflammation, and especially with those with prediabetes. Um, and then once someone had diabetes, they found that increasing exposure to traffic on a major road, roadway and proximity to that traffic was associated with elevations in blood glucose. And, you know, there are a lot of things that can increase blood glucose. So, you know, pollution, toxins, pesticides, even a non-ionizing radiation. So there are a lot of things we don't think about in our environment that might be driving the down the road to type 2 diabetes, but something like air pollution, you know, just look around. People know the quality of the air and and hopefully they'll find that it's, it's an incredibly important thing to uh, pay close attention to. <laughs> Very cool. So for those of you that are listening, maybe you're listening on Apple Podcast or, or Google or Spotify, you know, if you want to go over to optimaldx.com forward slash blog, you know, Beth and I put up a lot of these uh, as articles with our research. So it's a great way for you to get more information on this. Um, I'm going to be jumping right now into a couple of really cool indexes that I've been following for a while. Uh, one of my uh, good friends and colleagues, Dr. Brad Rackman, uh, practitioner out of uh, North Carolina, uh, functional medicine practitioner, incredibly smart, probably one of the smartest individuals I've ever met. Um, he really hooked me onto the Homer too. Um, and so thank you, Brad, for, for all of your support on this. Um, so we'll talk a little bit about Homer too. We'll talk a little bit about Quickie. These are indexes for gauging insulin resistance in our patients. So one of the things we have to remember is insulin sensitivity really reflects the responsiveness of our peripheral tissues to insulin and the, those cells' ability to take up circulating glucose. So long and the short of it, the more insensitive you are, the more insulin uh, resistance you have, the higher your glucose levels will tend to be and also higher your insulin levels. So when the cells are less responsive to insulin, certain things happen within the pancreas. The beta cells actually start producing more insulin to compensate. Beth talked about that a few moments ago. And this creates a vicious cycle of increased production, increased resistance more resistance, now we're going to have to put more out. And this is why it sort of boggles my mind um, when I hear that, you know, type 2 diabetics who are clearly in major insulin resistance are being given insulin. And it's like, <laughs> you just got to look at what insulin is in the body. And we don't have time necessarily to dive into all of this. But, you know, hyperinsulinemia is a big problem. And you can imagine people are injecting it into their bodies that maybe not necessary if we can mm -hmm. really address and we'll talk a little bit about some of that uh, towards the end of how, how can we as nutritional functional medicine practitioners naturopaths chiropractors uh, what can we do to help stop this well insulin sensitivity can be measured and should be assessed in patients at high risk for glucose dysregulation which i would probably say is the most of the people that we see in our offices uh -huh. um, and so we have to look at kind of well what are the ways that we can do that one of the gold standard ways of measuring for insulin sensitivity these are relatively invasive, I would say actually pretty, pretty invasive. <laughs> and they include what's called a hyperglycemic or and or a hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp, and also intravenous glucose tolerance testing. So even the less invasive glucose tolerance test may not be as ideal as it doesn't really reflect disease progression. It's really good for kind of like that window, that snapshot. But ultimately, what we're really looking for and the work that we're doing is really about trend analysis. Are we, how, how quickly are we trending towards type 2 diabetes, full-blown insulin resistance and that sort of thing? And also the glucose or the oral glucose tolerance test doesn't distinguish between beta cell failure and peripheral insulin resistance. So we'll, we'll, we'll be putting up a white paper that kind of goes into this in a little bit more detail. Instead, insulin resistance may be measured using what's called a homeostatic model assessment or HOMA, H-O-M-A. And this is a calculation that was actually developed at the University of Oxford um, in the United Kingdom. And what it does, it takes into account fasting glucose, fasting insulin and or C-peptide. And so they, the first calculator they came out with was, was literally a calculator. It was, mm -hmm. you know, if you put in the values, you would get a, a response out. But what they realized is that they actually wanted to find a more refined and a better way of predicting um, diabetes. So they came up with HOMA2. They updated HOMA in 1996, and thanks, Beth, for, for pointing out that date. Mm -hmm. Um, updated HOMA2 calculators in 1996, and it takes into account pro-insulin secretion as well as variances in both hepatic and peripheral glucose resistance. So this is the difference. You know, you'll see HOMA2, 
and we're going to be releasing HOMA2 into the software. We will calculate this for you based on mm -hmm. fasting glucose. Uh, if you have C-peptide in there, it'll preferentially use C-peptide. And then if you have insulin only, if you have glucose and insulin, then it will also give you um, a HOMA score. So these are, are found to actually really correlate well with that more invasive gold standard method. That's the um, hyperglycemic and hyperinsulinemic euglycemic clamp. Um, and I believe that's actually, a, they go in there and, and do something with the pancreas itself, Beth, do you? Did you look I haven't that? had one myself. <laughs> no, I, I, I've, I've never had one. I'm just sort of curious about what that actually is. I think that's what they do. Um, anyway, so what is HOMA2? Um, we'll talk a little bit about HOMA2. There's three values that we look at, HOMA2IR, HOMA2%B, and HOMA2%S. And I'm going to just quickly run through these. And like I said, these are going to be up on the blog post at optimaldx.com forward slash blog. And you can read these and look at the research for yourself. So HOMA2IR estimates insulin resistance. So HOMA2IR will be one in those people with no insulin resistance. Um, HOMA2IR and HOMA2%B, and I'll talk about percent B in a few moments, will both be elevated early in insulin resistance, prediabetes and early type two diabetes. Elevated HOMA2IR and a decreasing HOMA2%B can be seen as beta cells start to fail and produce less insulin. One of the things that Beth talked about was as you get further down this process and you're whipping those, those pancreas cells, those beta cells to produce mm -hmm. insulin, they finally give up. And actually you start moving more into, I think Beth, like almost a type one diabetic perspective where there's no, there's no output of insulin. Mm -hmm. little mm -hmm. output. And so in that situation, if you're seeing elevated HOMA2IR and a decreasing HOMA2%B, not a good place to be, I don't think. Mm -hmm. So proposed cutoffs, and again, we'll have these in the, in the blog post. Um, in 2004, uh, to identify metabolic syndrome or early stage insulin resistance. Remembering metabolic syndrome really is early stage insulin resistance. They're looking at HOMA2IR above 1.47, and then looking at uh, identifying insulin resistance, uh, HOMA2IR will be um, above 1.87. So again, that was further refined in 2009. If you're going to detect metabolic syndrome, HOMA2IR is going to be above 1.4. And then to detect overt insulin resistance, that HOMA2IR will probably be about 1.8. Um, I like to, you know, our standard range that we'll have in the software is about 0.5 to 1.8. Uh, our optimal range, we like to see about 0.75 to 1.4 would probably be a good range to look at. What about HOMA2%S? So percent S estimates insulin sensitivity, i.e. what is the capacity of the peripheral cells to respond to insulin? So the higher the HOMA2S, the more responsive the cells are to insulin, the lower the HOMA2%S, the less responsive. So it's linked to insulin resistance and should really be accompanied by the HOMA2IR score, which of course we will be giving you as well. It's gonna be about 100 in normal insulin sensitivity, decreases as insulin resistance increases. Standard range, typically about 75 to 250, optimal range between 85 to 200. And finally, HOMA2%B, we talked about HOMA2%B in terms of its relationship with HOMA2IR. This is a really cool measurement, it's estimating beta cell function. So an increase in HOMA2%B reflects increased beta cell activity. It will increase as levels of insulin increase, but will decrease after prolonged, chronically elevated insulin levels, reflecting that beta cell failure. We'll be about 100% with normal beta cell function and no insulin resistance. Uh, increases along with HOMA2IR, that's suggestive of prediabetes. And uh, you're going to want to like really start bringing out some of your nutritional lifestyle, supplemental uh, interventions to, to work with that. This is a, not a good sign. I'll repeat this again, because we looked at this uh, earlier, a decreasing HOMA 2% B along with an increasing HOMA 2 IR. Now we're really looking, probably progressing to type two diabetes. So these are really cool biomarkers. Um, we'll, we'll, we're going to be loading up a, a white paper that goes into these in a lot more detail. And Beth's going to be producing a couple of blog posts around this. So um, look for this in the, in the software. Um, go to optimaldx.com forward slash blog to read some of these posts. And another one um, that's kind of come to attention is the Quantitative Insulin Sensitivity Check Index, also known as Quickie. Now, this is a variation of HOMA. It's a simple calculation that uses fasting glucose and fasting insulin to assess insulin sensitivity. It was actually found to be strongly correlative to an inversely uh, with fasting insulin 
in those uh, who are healthy, non-obese, non-diabetic. Um, so it's the inverse of the sum of the fasting insulin and fasting glucose logarithm, if you want to know what that means. Uh, again, we'll, we'll have a, a blog post about this uh, at Optimal TX. So it's a formula. So you put in your fasting insulin and your fasting glucose, and it will give you a score. So greater than 0.45 is a normal reference level. So it's a little bit like adiponectin. The higher the level of quickie, the better you are. Is that, I'm right in thinking that, Beth? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's when it starts to drop, that becomes a problem. So about 0.3 to 0.45, insulin resistance is likely. Less than uh, 0.339 uh, associated with increasing insulin resistance and increasing cardiovascular risk and obesity. And then less than 0.3, now you're looking at a, a diabetes uh, diagnosis. So pretty cool. Uh, there was a uh-huh. study that Beth looked at, a cohort study of 5,511 adults suggesting specific, specific cutoff values for diagnosing metabolic syndrome. And interestingly, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in men and women, remembering that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is probably the number one cause of an increase in liver enzymes mm-hmm. uh, in patients as well. So for metabolic syndrome, uh, levels below 0.343 in men and 0.331 in women. And then that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease below 0.347 in men and below 0.333 in women. So we will be having the quickie calculator as well. Uh, in the software, and that will be generated from fasting insulin and fasting glucose. So a lot of great information on on these biomarkers. And uh, so this is how we can go about um, assessing for for insulin resistance in our patients. Now, Beth, the question is, what can Mm -hmm. we do to reverse it? So Mm -hmm. Beth's done a little bit of a deep dive into the um, sort of nutritional side of things. Mm -hmm. So maybe you can kick that off for us. Great. And I've seen it for myself, I know, and, I, and it's using the blood chem software and doing a functional blood chem analysis on folks that had no idea they mm-hmm. were trotting down the road to diabetes. And I tell them, I don't diagnose, but let me tell you where you're going. <laughs> yeah, right, I don't diagnose, yeah. but I know kind of where you're going. Yeah, I know where you're headed. <laughs> so, you know, and sometimes it's got to be a little bit strict, and, and it depends on what people respond to, you right. know, very, very strict restrictions, or just gradual changes over time, but they need to make changes, right? Or, or they're going to keep going down that road, and we know where they're going to land. So it's super, super important to catch this early and let people know they're on the road to diabetes, and you want to catch it before the pathology of diabetes sets in, because that might be when they finally go to the doctor and say, oh my gosh, I feel so sick, and this is what's going on. And, and not that it's irreversible at that point, because I don't think that it is, but you're in a lot deeper than you want to be at that point. So catch it early. Um, insulin resistance is the perfect thing to catch early on. It's easy to do, as we have seen. Um, especially when you see abnormal lipid profiles, especially hypertriglyceridemia, you've got to assess for insulin resistance. Uh, if you have kids with abnormal lipid profiles, childhood and adolescence, uh, they have to, in obesity, they have to be assessed for insulin resistance and followed for a potential risk for diabetes. Right. So, so to reverse this, uh, they have to incorporate habits that are the opposite pretty much of habits that cause the insulin resistance in the first place, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so basically overeating, just overeating in general, but especially high calorie, nutrient dense, uh, really nutrient deficient, I'm sorry, not nutrient dense, high calorie, nutrient deficient, highly processed foods and the resultant obesity that they cause can promote insulin secretion and insulin resistance as well as metabolic syndrome and heart disease. So a high calorie, high fat, uh, meal is going to increase your insulin secretion because your body's trying to take care of all that food and put it away for later. So overeating in general can promote insulin resistance. Now the insulin secretion following a meal can vary and that will depend on the meal content, GI motility, gastric emptying, et cetera, et cetera. But basically food stimulates insulin secretion. <laughs> so right. The, yeah. right. And the other end of it is the cells have to respond. Yeah. And if the cells don't respond, the insulin secretion will continue to, to increase. Um, now intake, I think this is really interesting. Intake of animal fat, which is high in saturated fat, appears to be most closely associated with poor glycemic control and diabetes. And, you know, it's, they need to look into that further too, because if you have uh, animal fat from an animal who's been eating a lot of pesticide-laden and toxin-laden grains and foods that then get stored in their fat, 
then gee, we don't know, is it the toxins and the pesticides that could be contributing to diabetes or is it to pure animal fat? So mm. if you fattened up an animal on grass, well, I don't know, it might have a different effect. That's my professional opinion because we know pesticides contribute to diabetes. Right. We know the NIH has a, you know, they put out a paper on that. So anyway, so it's the animal fat. So what's the animal been eating is really what you want to look, look at. But animal fat right now, correlates well with poor glycemic control and diabetes. And the Western style diet, of course, here in, in the U.S. is highly, it tends to be, not, people are catching on now, but the Western style diet, as is now, is highly processed, high in excess fat, animal fat, too much carbohydrates, simple carbohydrates. And that, of course, increases your risk of uh, insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes. So but the thing is, this is a mistake I've seen people make, and I have to reverse it with them. Severe restriction of carbohydrate isn't necessarily beneficial because insulin is needed to suppress the endogenous glucose production. Right. And yeah, and it's a significant factor in insulin resistance. So if you if you don't have that suppression of endogenous glucose production, you're going to have increased glucose, increased insulin, and then you have that vicious cycle. So um, matter of fact, prolonged carbohydrate restriction can promote hepatic insulin resistance. So that's got to be considered because it's become kind of fashionable and it's popular right. to restrict carbohydrates. And people think, oh, restrict it down to zero. And that is not healthy. You know, if you medically need to be on a ketogenic diet, that is one thing. If you have cancer and you're going to restrict simple carbs and sugars and things like that, that's another thing. But just casually restricting carbohydrates to a level that's too low, you could increase, ironically, increase your risk of insulin resistance, hepatic insulin resistance. Mm. Uh, but it can, it can be reversed with a healthy approach to weight reduction, calorie restriction, and regular physical exercise. Um, elevated blood pressure can also be improved by doing those things. And of course, an improvement in diet, especially minerals like potassium and magnesium, that's so important. Um, they did do a six-month program, and they studied the effects of lifestyle education and modification on 160 individuals with prediabetes. So their fasting glucose was 100 to 124 milligrams per deciliter or 5.6 to 6.9 millimoles per liter. And this, what they did was they took one group of people and they gave them a kind of a quick overview. Uh, here's a general review of lifestyle changes. Here's how you might be able to prevent type 2 diabetes. Off you go. And the second group, they had a much more intensive structured program. So they incorporated intense education about prediabetes and then diabetes itself. What are the risk factors? What are the complications? That will scare people. I hate to use that as a scare tactic, mm -hmm. but you know, and even losing a toe to diabetes, people are going to be upset about. So we're talking about amputations and that's a complication. Uh, diet improvements, increased physical activity were all covered in the form of lectures and workshops. So they did that at baseline. They did it again at three months and that more intensive intervention uh, induced significant reductions in BMI, reductions in fasting glucose, fasting insulin, OMA IR, hemoglobin A1C, and even total carbohydrate intake, and also then significant increases in fiber, in micronutrients like vitamins A, C, and E, and B vitamins, and calcium, magnesium, potassium, sodium, copper, iron, and phosphorus. So their diets greatly improved when they were taught the importance of a healthy diet. Wow, so it's, it's important to do. It's important to do a healthy uh, weight loss, if someone does need weight loss, right, a plant-based diet that is, is central, central to a healthy diet. An abundance of uh, fresh fruits and veggies, limit your intake of animal-based fats, restrict, restrict or eliminate processed and canned foods, incorporate physical activity and some structured exercise, balance macronutrients and adequate micronutrients. So macronutrients mm -hmm. important, micronutrients even more so. And we'll have a list of the minerals that are so important to glucose homeostasis and reducing oxidative stress. We'll put that in the blog post too. Cool. Um, there's a lot to it, right? <laughs> I could go yeah, on. And I think that, that, that the education piece is so important. Mm -hmm. You can't mm -hmm. rely on people to be motivated enough just because they're not feeling very well. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So how do we as practitioners do that? You know, is it forming support groups 
Maybe that's the way it is. I don't yeah. know. Do you know of anyone who's doing models like that? Well, coaching, well, there are support groups, you know, I mean, even, you know, there are some structured support groups out there now that, you know, promote healthy weight loss and people improve. Um, and sometimes it's a group setting like that, or sometimes yeah. it's a really motivated coach, an individual coach that is really connected to the person and it's one-on-one -on -one and it's intense and it's at least weekly. I think that that having the right coach is super, super important a metabolic or nutrition coach that connects with the individual because they need that follow through. It's not something you're going to do for a couple of weeks and then give up on, right? These are changes. We want to incorporate these changes. So that's a lifestyle change from now going forward, not just for a month and not just for two months. Food is so like ingrained in culture and mm -hmm. you're, you get out of a group like that, you feel great. You feel, you kind of have that sort of almost born again feeling, but then, <laughs> you know, yeah. Hey, how quickly does it go when you go down and, you know, hanging out with family and they're eating mm -hmm. pizza and, and drinking soda. It's like, ugh. Well, I'm going to say too, I don't want to be a purist and I don't recommend anybody be a purist. My approach, not that it's soda you can do without for sure, but for foods that are not the healthiest, like my approach is usually 80-20, like 80% super healthy foods and 20% kind of almost anything else that you want to have. Right. And to me, for some people, if they're really sick, then it's, you know, 80-20 for sure. Uh, because you want to teach them that there's really not many foods that are off limits, but if you mostly eat these foods that are junk foods, you're going to be sick. Just like you put maple syrup in your gas tank. Well, your car is going to be sick. You got to put the right gas in. You got to change your spark plugs. You got to give yeah. it the right oil. So teaching them that, but yet not being so purist that it's stressful, I think is pretty important. Yeah. A good, good, very good point there. And then finally, we're looking here at, like you said, we'll put in the blog post, some of those uh, minerals and, and micronutrients. Do you find like the, the product companies that we work with, do you feel, mm -hmm. feel like the blood glucose products do enough sort of cross the board uh, of these types of, of minerals and things like that? Well, I think if someone's going to continue on a junk food diet and not get exercise, I don't think the supplements can do all that much. Right. They're supplements, you know, so they always have to still change their base diet, get some exercise, and then the supplements can support blood glucose regulation for sure mm. and and it's you know if their diet is pure you know if you grow your own food organically in your backyard and you pick it and eat it right away you might get enough minerals but mm. i think it's really hard to get especially the ones we're listing uh some of those trace minerals and even major minerals from foods because the plants need to get them from the soil that's right. where we get them from the plants because the plants got them from the soil when the soil is depleted which it tends to be especially mm -hmm. for trace elements um you just can't get it out of the food so yes these minerals and these other things that might need supplementation because that people are not getting them in the diet they're going to support they're not magic bullets they're just supporting normal glucose regulation right, right and homeostasis so yes there it has to be supplemented sometimes if people aren't getting them in the diet so mm -hmm. some of those products yeah some of those mixed products and you'll find variations and they don't all have the same ingredients and some of them will support this part of glucose metabolism but not that part but you know it's it's probably going to be a um you're going to try it and see what works for a person but it always has to be the supplementation has got to be accompanied by a healthy diet and activity you know it's got yeah. to be well we're kind of getting to the end of the mm -hmm. of the podcast here maybe could finish off with some of the the big ones that we're, we're all familiar with chromium and then mm -hmm. you know the, the b vitamins and things like that Mm -hmm. um, vanadium people forget vanadium a lot vanadium, and yeah. you know even the other trace minerals like i said boron comes up and, and magnesium is important for glucose tolerance as well so that shouldn't be left out and uh, cinnamon you know they've they've created products that have cinnamon as yeah, part of the supplement yeah. too and that's a whole nother deep dive that we could do but simple things vitamin d and vitamin c even uh, all of these are important to uh, glucose homeostasis. Vitamin E, the tocopherols and tocotrienols. Omega-3 fatty acids as well, especially because they help you reduce inflammation. So they can help mitigate insulin resistance as well. So it's the same thing we kind of preach over and over, like micronutrients, adequate micronutrients, balanced macronutrients, mm -hmm. exercise, you know, everything is important. Not just, I never take one vitamin or mineral and say, here, take this by itself. I almost always recommend a really well-balanced multivitamin mineral supplement. And then we can do blood sugar support on top of that and make sure that we're not, if those overlap, 
you want to make sure you're not overdosing someone, especially mm -hmm. with the trace minerals, because you can go overboard on those pretty quickly and easily like selenium. You don't want to overdose someone, say, on selenium or yeah. even the other the micro minerals or trace minerals. So, yeah, the, the products are good as supplements, but I think they should be accompanied by a really good multivitamin mineral supplement as your daily and, uh, of course, exercise and a healthy diet. Yeah. So if we could summarize this up, first of all, you have to have the knowledge to understand what insulin resistance is, what insulin is, what glucose is. So that was the beginning part of this podcast. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people come to the podcast thinking, oh, we're going to be wowing them with all the latest and greatest and talk deep dive into biochemistry. Part of what I'm really interested in is keeping it as simple as possible. And the reason for that is not to, not to speak down to anybody because most of us know this stuff, but sometimes it's hard to be able to talk to our patients and our clients mm -hmm. in a language in a way that allows them to be able to understand. Because as Beth pointed out, with the, the most effective way to, to make change was with some pretty radical education. Mm -hmm. and once people are educated and they understand mm -hmm. and they can put themselves into the picture, then change can happen. Then mm -hmm. obviously we as physicians and, 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 and healthcare practitioners, we have to be able to have the ability to be able to assess where is someone on the road to diabetes. So looking at some of these biomarkers is super, super important. And then this final piece is um, about reversing it. So I mean, as Beth pointed out, and, and it'll probably be in the bottom of one of our, our posts here, is the bottom line is insulin resistance and even prediabetes can be rerouted and reversed with diet and lifestyle changes. We just need the will and the way. So we as practitioners need to be able to work with our patients to help them find the will, because a lot of this work is going to be on their own uh, or with family support. And we're not going to be there every day to be able to, you know, be the rah-rah health coach all the time. So they have to find the will and they have to find the way. We can give them the way. The will actually has to kind of happen from inside of themselves. But this is a huge problem. It's a problem that is affecting uh, as we saw um, at the beginning part of the biomarker discussion, eight to 19 year olds, the, the levels and numbers of insulin resistance and type two diabetes in that particular age group is off the charts. So uh, really encourage you to, to do whatever you can to educate yourself, find out about the biomarkers, run the blood work, look at the signs and symptoms, work to help identify where your patients are on the road to this, institute some of these uh, uh, treatment ideas and really work with them to be able to empower them to make a change pretty cool stuff. Thank you, Beth, for You're welcome. Uh, always you. for your really hard work. Beth does a tremendous amount of, of research for us. So we're supremely indebted to you for, oh. for bringing this to our awareness. And uh, thank you all for listening. Um, not sure what our next topic will be for, for next month's podcast, but thank you for tuning into Optimal, the podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby. I'm from Optimal DX. If you're interested in what we do, come over to OptimalDX.com. Check out our blog. Check out some of the resources that we have available to you. And if you think that uh, um, you really want to dive deep into functional blood chemistry analysis, we're here for you uh, on that particular journey. So thanks, Beth. Thank, Thank you, you, everybody. And we'll see you on another podcast. Bye.